You are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to our third installment of the OHBM Brain Mapping Podcast, Neurosalience. And uh, today I have, uh, my guest is uh, Katie Chang, and she's been uh, a pioneer in looking at resting state fluctuations and has been doing so for over a decade now. She's currently uh, an, an assistant professor at Vanderbilt University. But before that, she spent some time at the NIH working with Jeff Dunn, uh, from 2016 to 2018 in his group. And, and then before that, she was a, uh, a graduate student um, at Stanford University, in, and she received her PhD in electrical engineering in 2011. She was working with uh, Gary Glover at Stanford for a PhD, but she also got her master's from Stanford and her uh, bachelor's degree at, at, um, at MIT uh, in 2004. So she's been really delving into uh, all the problems and all the interesting aspects of, of resting state. And as we'll get into today, you know, there's both, you know, you can look at it as a problem or you can look at it as an opportunity to, to extract information. And then that's sort of near and dear to my heart. You know, part of what my research is, is, is along the lines, very much similar to Katie, complementary in many ways of, of, of trying to understand where these fluctuations come from and trying to use them as well as possible. Uh, so to begin, um, why don't uh, you just introduce yourself and and uh, and talk a little bit about what you've doing, what you've been doing, and and uh, you know what motivated you and 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 from the start and and what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. Um, it's it's really an honor to be on this podcast. Um, so yeah, I'm uh, currently an assistant professor at Vanderbilt, so joining you from Nashville here. And uh, my lab has been, as Peter said, working on uh, neuroimaging methods, particularly digging into the fMRI signals and seeing how much information we can pull out of them and how that can be useful for understanding uh, the brain in, in health and disease. Um, so I guess in terms of how I got started um, in fMRI, um, early in my graduate career, I had an opportunity to work um, in the lab of Vinod Menon and Mike Grecius was there as well at Stanford. Um, and I think this was a very lucky opportunity for me because I, not only did I get introduced to fMRI, but also concepts like resting state and brain connectivity and dynamics and EEG fMRI. So um, this is very influential um, you know, for the things that I continued to work on. <clears throat> Um, and, you know, I think that when I when I first started to look at fMRI data and to, to dig into the signals, you know, you get a data set, you can you can you can just start to plot the signals and start to look at like relationships between brain regions. And it was just like so fascinating how I could apply techniques that I learned from signal processing, um, like classes I was, you know, in, in electrical engineering, a, a master's student at the time. Um, and, you know, just try to see what's in, in fMRI. Um, <clears throat> sorry, in the fMRI data, um, and that that might be actually helping us learn something about the brain. So I found that there was this very interesting space of problems that we could um, just dive into with, um, with, with fMRI data. And um, yeah, I guess that's how I've, I've been hooked in this field <laughs> since, <laughs> since then. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's actually one of the things that the field, um, yeah, it seems like you have a lot of physicists who, who work with the hardware and the pulse sequences, a lot of neuroscientists, but um, and and obviously the field has exploded in terms of uh, people doing processing, right. but but you were one of the first, and, and and we're still trying to apply modern processing uh, to it. But I mean, you're you're 
major, uh, about a decade ago, actually, it was your paper that opened up the world of resting state in some sense saying, oh, look, it, you know, it's not only, you know, look at one time series and look at the correlation, there's, there's all these dynamic changes. And so what made you think of trying to, like, for instance, you applied wavelet analysis in, your, in one of your first papers that, that really sort of opened things up to the fMRI world. So, so what was your thought process in, in doing that? Yeah, um, I guess in terms of dynamics in general, I mean, I love to look at these time series data and um, was always kind of, there were a few papers, not not in dynamic or connectivity per se, but in um, that I had found in the fMRI field that were doing something along the lines of time varying um, task activation um, and uh, or some kind of, uh, I'm gonna say like autoregressive or like, you know, um, you know, switching uh, state models and, um, applying that to neural signals. And I just thought that that was really interesting and like wondered if we can get more of this information out of fMRI as well. Um, and so I guess um, in terms of the wavelet approach, um, like wavelets are very nice in overcoming some of the limitations of fixed window kind of analysis. So if you, I guess um, conceptually the most straightforward to think, uh, straightforward way to think about dynamics is by kind of breaking the scan up into uh, different chunks um, of data and then trying to apply a measure like uh, connectivity, you know, like, uh, sorry, correlation or um, ICA or something within these different time windows. Um, but then, you know, what kind of window size do you choose? Um, and like, this is gonna be very dependent on like what time scales you think are interesting to study. And we, if we choose a fixed window size, then we're kind of compromising what we can see at faster scales, um, but we might not be big enough to see something happening at slower scales. So I think the idea of a kind of multi-resolution analysis fits really well um, with dynamics. And um, yeah, I had been looking into some uh, toolboxes for doing this at the time. Actually, the, the, the toolbox that we ended up using was from, a group that studies, I believe, climate modeling. And so um, I remember reading this paper and, and you see the Arctic oscillation or some climate phenomena. Um, and the, the time series look very similar to fMRI, but on the scale of like tens of years rather than like <laughs> <laughs> seconds. So, but it was so, it was nice because that was like another, um, I love trying to read the literature in different fields and kind of bring it into fMRI and see, you know, where the ideas can kind of help. And so I think that was like one one thing I, I remember very well that uh, um, translated well to fMRI. Right. I, I think, right. There were some people who dabbled. I mean, obviously there's some people like, I remember Brad Biswell having an abstract, you know, looking at time frequency analysis, but he never really pushed it. That, that was before you know, things were really taking off. And, and so it didn't really catch on until until you pulled that out. And and, and you bring up a really interesting point, um, you know, in terms of, you know, once the art, I mean, sort of like the art of, of trying to figure out, you know, you know what, what people have been doing in fMRI ever since the beginning is you you create a model of what you expect. And at the very beginning, it was an activation. And, and then you can pull it out because you can create a, a clear model of it. But with resting state, uh, it's much trickier because you have to, you know, take a lighter touch and sort of like kind of look at it um, in, in a way that doesn't artificially pull something out or or miss something as well. And so we're still struggling with that. Um, so let me just get into uh, uh, very quickly, um, you know, like when we talk about fluctuations, you know, there's 
uh, I just simply listed for myself, uh, you know, all the all the types of sources. Like you know, there's motion, respiration, changes in 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 from both changes in CO2 and also the B naught sort of chest cavity. Uh, you have heart rate. You might even have vasomotion. You might even have cognition, vigilance, which we'll get into. Uh, neuronal processes, but not conscious, and then conscious processes. <laughs> so there's all this stuff going on. Yeah. And um, just before we get into some of the details of, of your work, what what do you think is, and obviously there's many interesting aspects of this, but what's most interesting to you uh, right now in terms of trying to pull something out? I mean, they're all interesting. But. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. It, yeah. The resting state signal. It's a yeah. There's a, there's so much there, as you said. And after I've been asked the question, okay, after you regress out head motion and breathing, and what's left? What's left for neural activity? Um, do definitely there's there's something there. But I think that like one of our interests has been trying to disentangle these things. So I mean, if we just you know take a time course from an ROI and we start to find its correlation with other regions, then we're really taking like the lump sum of all of these things together and that is very difficult to interpret the resulting data because then you don't know like how much of, of what you're measuring in one scan which may be actually different from another scan so um yeah so if we can actually um tease out these effects in the signal then i think that well first of all it's it's helpful for interpreting what we're doing um second all second of all we can actually study whatever specific aspect we're interested in so i mean in some cases for example like the respiration effects are noise um, I, I guess I'm really what I mean here is like the the slow fluctuations in breathing that um, you and Rasmus Byrne had, had done some fundamental work on um, RVT. So um, like some people might want to pull that out as noise, but on the other hand, um, a lot of groups have been doing work showing how that actually contributes important information about brain function or brain physiology. And can we take this time course and look at like, you know, it's dynamic mapping across different brain regions, or can we see like how strongly it relates in one subject versus another, you know, can it pull out some kind of vascular abnormality? And so then we can, if we're able to isolate that component, then we can use that in some specific way. So I think that like, there's so much rich information there, but um, we have to kind of tap into how we can get out all these different components. Yeah, 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 no, actually, um... Right, and, and it's it is interesting how how we are trying to do that. I mean, I have a you know one of my goals is sort of right. I think that I think we can understand all these things, and 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 it you know the goal obviously would be to remove it all so your your temporal signal noise is is higher and you can pull out better activation. But um, but you've you've sort of been studying this along the lines of uh, 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 looking at so one aspect of what you've been doing has been looking at, at vigilance, uh, uh, which is, you know, related to the fluctuations in, in, in many ways. So you wanna uh, talk about your work with, with regard to vigilance, uh, studying vigilance, how you got into yeah. that? Yeah, sure, actually. Um, so when we started doing work on, on dynamics, I guess one of my, one of the thoughts that, that always would occur to me is like, how much is it due to people being sleepy? So um, I actually, um, I, I scanned uh, Gary Glover, my PhD advisor, um, I, as preliminary data for an F31, like uh, NIH predoctoral grant um, with, in, in graduate school with the idea of looking at dynamics. And so we, <laughs> I, I scanned him. I didn't mean to scan him for as long as I did. I thought I had put in a certain number of frames, but actually he was in there for like 45 minutes. And um, <laughs> he was very angry after this, but um, he also <laughs> <was> sort of... <laughs> 
<laughs> he was also like, yeah, I fell asleep for a while. And I was afterwards like looking at the data and like, huh, I wonder like, you know, how much of the change is, is because because he fell asleep and like, I don't know, I fell asleep in the scanner. So I think I kind of carried that around in the back of my mind, didn't really immediately study it yet. But there are a few things that kind of would kept pointing me in that direction. Uh, so one was um, when I first started in, in Jeff Dunn's group, one of my first studies was trying to see if there were any EEG correlates of these time varying dynamics. And so um, I looked at different frequency bands and tried to look at, well, if, if the alpha band power is high or the theta band power is low in this window, like what's going on in terms of fMRI functional connectivity. Um, and it seemed like the closest, the strongest relationship um, which is actually the bands we kind of started with were like alpha and theta and um, people in the EEG literature had been taking these as kind of it, it, as, as one there's, there's many indicators of vigilance but that was kind of one of the markers was like a ratio of alpha and theta power and so it's like huh that's interesting okay so it's cool that there's an electrical correlate of connectivity but um, and it, the fact that it's in those bands kind of points to maybe there is a vigilance effect and maybe that could be one of the main uh, sources there. Maybe it's not the whole story, but it's actually, you know, like one component of the time varying correlation could be um, in in vigilance. Um, and that was also interesting, I mean, to, to take a kind of like side road for a second. I mean, there was a lot of I, I personally had a lot of skepticism about this dynamic stuff at first because I, I actually didn't really almost want to publish our first like wavelengths paper because I felt like it, it really opened up more questions than it addressed. Well, those it, are the best, like, yeah. <laughs> what did you say? Those are the best kind of papers that open up more questions. <laughs> Maybe. But I was like, well, I mean, you know, we just we just apply this and we see something change. And I remember being like, well, how can we actually tell if that's a real change? Like we don't know what it means. It's a resting state. Um, and how do you even statistically test for this? So I remember going to like the Stanford um, con statistical consulting group, which was really helpful actually. They, I was like, I have this problem and I wanna see if the dynamics are significant. And um, they they found it interesting too, uh, I think. So they, they actually helped um, on, on that paper. I definitely uh, would appreciate their assistance. Um, so, but I think that, you know, we still have, uh, that's been a big area of discussion in this field. And I think that there's been many more like uh, techniques developed and uh, thinking that's gone into how to, how to figure that out. Um, but I guess going um, back to, yeah, the arousal stuff, um, we, I think that we're, so, so there was already a lot of work in resting state itself, not in, and maybe the dynamics part, but like um, uh, trying or showing that there was some effective vigilance state on fMRI. So um, Tom Liu's group in particular had done a lot of studies on caffeine um, or looking at EG vigilance markers and how that correlates with uh, changes in resting state and specifically the global signal. Um, so that was another thing that kind of pointed pointed me in that direction. Um, and but I guess that the the real um, moment where I thought it was uh, uh, where I where I kind of like. Um, ended up putting a lot of my um, energy into this um, area was we were scanning monkeys um, as this was at the NIH with David Leopold's group and um, they could scan monkeys that were not under anesthesia so they were in the resting state basically they were in a dark room and there was a camera that monitored their face or their their eyes anyway to see their behavioral state and um, I started looking at some of the data they had acquired um, previously. And um, they had these, I, I didn't look at the video data at first, but was just looking at the, um, the fMRI data and there's like intracranial electrophysiology data. So that was very really rich, you know, you can kind of like try to map different features of fMRI and, um, 
and electrical signals. Um, and I, I got very inconsistent relationships between those signals. So if I pulled out a frequency band and tried to correlate with fMRI, there was actually a very different picture in this monkey from this monkey or from this time to this time. And I'm like, gosh, <laughs> it's so complicated. <laughs> But then at some point I was like, well, let me look at that eye data because like they had actually previously shown in, in one of their um, early works with or in 2010 paper um, in David's group that um, that the vigilant state was important in looking at these um, kind of fMRI electrophysiology relationships. Um, and when you start to see those videos, um, the monkeys got so sleepy actually. Well, some of them, some of them seem to be more like awake, but you could see that like at some point in time, like their eyes start rolling, they just like really yeah. just doze off. And it was like, it was so obvious. And we can't always, you can't see that in all our humans, right? Like we suspect that they're going to sleep, but you don't really know that they are going to sleep. Um, and so I was like, wow, well, we should definitely try to like, segment the data by states or try to look at a regressor that's basically just how open the eyes are and so actually started by making a regressor of just like really simple binary regressor are the eyes mostly open or closed um, and that had a extremely robust correlation with the fMRI like I couldn't believe like how strong this was and consistent it was like the most consistent thing I'd seen in the data so far um, and it was this interesting pattern, which I know you've also seen as well, and um, have, has been uh, shown in, in other studies where when when the eyes were open, you actually see a, a really widespread decrease in signal across the cortex, but then a kind of opposite signal change in subcortical regions. And that in that case, it was very pronounced in the thalamus. Um, and so that was, I mean, it, it seemed to explain quite a lot of variation in the data, um, but also was interesting like how, how how um, the, the pattern associated with that seemed to be very um, consistent. So it kind of like pointed us toward the idea that maybe we can, you know, if we don't know when the monkey is sleeping or not, maybe we can actually just identify that in the data itself. So like, can we use that pattern and kind of go to any fMRI data set and then be able to kind of pull out the time course of vigilance changes and have that match like what's actually going on like in terms of their behavioral state? Yeah. Yeah, no, th that data was was interesting. It, it, it's it's also so there's a couple of threads to take from that, and that is, uh, yeah, we've seen we've seen this. Uh, it just reminds me also of I mean this whole subcortical cortex coupling or, or anti-correlation showed up. I mean, I remember looking at one of Logothetis's Nature articles where he's looking at hippocampal ripples when when a monkey's I think it was monkey when he was sleeping, and showing this this anti-correlation effect from subcortical to cortical. And, and also recently, and it might be related in one of these things, it's one of these mysteries that still is wide open. Uh, you know, Laura Lewis had some interesting data where, where she sees, uh, uh, you know, she's, she's claiming it's, it's more like not really glymphatic or it could be glymphatic, but it's sort of like CSF slow pulsations that are, that show this, this effect at the base of the brain. But then if you look at the correlation with the rest of the brain, it sort of this shows this anti-correlation as well. Um, yeah, and we're, and, you know, we don't know if it's bold or inflow, but it's probably, I think it's both and to, to some degree and, and that's, but uh, it's, there's some, you know, that's, a, that's the fun thing about fMRI. There's something you feel that is potentially very deep in terms of a principle of what's going on and, but it's still, you can't quite get at it yet. I mean, in terms of, I mean, it's, it still needs a little bit more external measures. And one thing that was intriguing with David Leopold's, uh, I remember, you know, when I saw a talk of yours, you were talking about it with David Leopold, you know, he had a, 
uh, and this might go into the next topic, but um, he had an electrode on one area and looking at gamma frequencies um, and showing it correlates with the whole brain in some regard too. So there might be, you know, there's, there's these vigilance effects. Um, and as you measured with, with pupillometry, it was, it, it's, it's easily pulled out. People are trying to come up with sort of like templates and you've done that too, where, where uh, uh, you know, just tracking vigilance from the fMRI data itself which yeah. could be a huge, interesting thing and a, and a huge, maybe potentially confound to get rid of, I, you know, both. Right, yeah, depending, I guess, what you're interested in, in studying, so. Yeah. Uh, so what what do you think of of what's necessary? I mean, there's all kinds of tools to use to, to measure, you know, you're mentioning EEG, uh, but there's all kinds of other things, um, uh, pupillometry. Um, it seems that people should be using these tools before we can actually get this information, like, you know, bellows, even skin conductance maybe, or something like that, just to just to try to pull out a lot of these autonomic sort of time courses externally. Um, yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, I think the kind of um, people are realizing and that like, you know, the, the more things we can kind of know about a person's ongoing states or physiology, um, I guess the like, well, more clearly you can under, understand the data, but also kind of remove things that you're not interested in or try to map, like, um, you know, if they have a change in an arousal state, like how does that relate to their cognitive, cognitive processing? Like it can be very useful kind of like information to just have during your scan and to be able to model that in to your analysis or to actually like con consider it as a, you know, one of your key variables. So um, yeah, and I was like, how much, <laughs> how much stuff do we need to put on a person <laughs> actually? I kind of have this like vision of like my skin, my subject doesn't have enough stuff on them yet. Like they have EG and they have like pulse ox and they have like, I don't know, like belt and maybe two belts and <laughs> maybe two pulse oxes and like, um, so uh, it's like, I wonder um, how much we need or how we, you know, then we can start to like, once we learn the pattern associated with one, maybe with the subject doesn't need to wear that anymore. So. Um, right, right, exactly. Uh, just to yeah, maybe jump ahead to one of your papers that just came out actually. Um, and this is something we're trying to work at with as well. I mean, you're, you're coming up with these deep learning approaches for, for pulling out both respiration and cardiac uh, uh, pretty robustly and maybe towards the goal of understanding vigilance, but also maybe as, you know, using as regressors in some way to, 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 uh, normalize the data. So, so would you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, so it actually kind of the, the, the idea for this in our group kind of started from our, our work on the vigilance state. So we had been using this kind of like template approach to estimate vigilance signals, but then we started to look at neural networks as a possibility. And um, we also, you know, we like have human connectome data, which has like many, a lot of subjects and it has physiological data. And um, we thought it would be interesting to also see like, oh, can we actually just apply this? Or like, can we kind of apply like these machine learning techniques to also extract um, this low frequency respiration signal? And other people had done work, you know, along similar lines with um, different ways of either like, of, of looking at say like the cardiac uh, pulsations, you know, you can kind of like take the timing of different, um, like slice acquisitions and try to piece that together, like uh, Blaise Frederick's group and other groups. So um, I think that like when, where we started along these lines was more like the low frequency, like respiratory signal um, and how we can pull that out of, uh, of, out of the data. So um, so yeah, we, we, we experimented with the convolutional neural networks to start. And also because I think 
um, it's always more interpretable if you have some linear model. We actually tried a like a simple linear model, like one neuron or one node, like a linear um, filter, and um, actually found that that did almost as well. Which which it, it's it's always great, I guess, if a simple approach um, can work well, because then you can kind of a little more easily anyway dive in and start to interpret the weights and um, what brain areas might be contributing more and, and so forth. Um, but um, but we're actually, so yeah, the idea is, can we, um, you know, if someone hasn't recorded physiological data from a subject like respiration or like heart rate, um, can we just apply our models to your fMRI data and kind of extract for you that entire time course of their low frequency respiratory variations or their low frequency um, heart rate variations? Um, and uh, yeah, we've been we've been continuing on this and uh, trying to see if we can get better predictions. So now we're we're turning back to more deep learning architectures and trying to jointly uh, do the respiration and heart rate. Um, and we, I'm, I'm happy we currently beat our baseline <laughs> from uh, from our previous work. So we're we're excited to see like how far we can um, uh, push that. Um, that's 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 really cool. And 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 actually, um, I mean, one of the goals of of that. I mean, this is something you know, we tried to sort of, and also, you know, we tried to look at uh, the NMR phase. I mean, so many people don't look at the NMR phase and it has, it's so, in, it seems like it's more information rich with regard to, you know, cardiac and maybe respiration as well. Uh, it should be more accessible, but, but one, one, here's a big, here's a mystery that I've been confronted with you know, like with working with Rasmus and whatever, we get we get the respiration response function. We have a bellows. We can we can valve that with the bellows. Maybe that's a poor man's way of doing exactly what you're doing, uh, but you're doing it much better in, in that regard since uh, it's not just relying on a on an external measure. And but what we found is that when we try to regress out our respiration signal, it doesn't really help that much. And and you've you've uh, you know you've brought up some work to suggest that the respiration response function sort of varies all over the place. It varies in space. And so it's hard to, you know, with the goal of trying to, let's say you want to get rid of it. Uh, it's, it's not as easy as just doing a, uh, a simple regression uh, to get rid of it. Um, yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, that's a really interesting question is like, what is the appropriate model to kind of relate a change in, in respiration to a change in the fMRI signal, which, yeah, they, they, their respiration response function and Erasmus was a really key step to saying like, well, we maybe don't want to look at a zero lag correlation or even a cross correlation. Like, it, it may be actually a, a best to kind of fit a, a model, a convolution based model to try to find a, a mapping between those. And I think, yeah, now it's it's really interesting to try to say like, well, we know the hemodynamic response varies across the brain. Um, and um, and now it's, um, people have shown, and we've also worked on like studies that, that show respiration responses, like, you know, also vary across the brain and maybe in a very organized way. Um, and so I guess in terms of like, whether it has an effect to, on regressing it out, well, I guess <laughs> two, a couple of things I, I think about. Well, one is um, some people like uh, have, um, asked me about doing correction with physiology and then they've sent me their data and the physiological data itself is very noisy. So um, they try to regress it out. You don't actually see an effect. Um, and so then, you know, I think the better tools we have for trying to clean those up, um, that's great <laughs> in terms of actually explaining variance in the signal. But like the other one that you, you, you were mentioning is like, yeah, what, what is the right, you know, model? And um, should we not just use one RRF um, across the whole brain, but can we, should we sort of look at how that varies. Um, and I think, I mean, I've 
there, I feel like there's, there can be quite a lot of individual very differences in how much effect you have from regressing out the, the respiration effect. Like some people who have very constant breathing, um, there, there's not going to be an effect of taking that out because that variation doesn't, the respiratory variation doesn't contribute a whole lot to their bold signal. Um, but sometimes you have people who are taking these intermittent deep breaths and then you can actually see lovely correlation between the um, the respiration and their whole brain average signal or signal anywhere. And um, when you regress that out, you can have a huge impact. I mean, I, I have like a kind of collection growing of, you know, subjects where like I rest, regress it out and I see a huge change. Like it's, and I think that like, you know, on big group average studies, you know, maybe maybe there's not going to be a huge effect if people aren't, don't have a systematic effect of their breathing or there's no correlation between the breathing and the task or whatever. But as the field tries to move toward like individual biomarkers, um, and wants to get like sensitive, rich, you know, data from like a few minutes of scanning, like then this is going to be really important yeah. <laughs> because if they take a few deep breaths, you're going to kind of change the interpretation of the data. Yes. So I kind of view it as like really important for, the, for those kinds of studies. Yeah. Yeah. And along the lines of biomarkers, what, what do you think is, um, what do you think is the most hopeful as, you know, a lot of people want to use resting state for a biomarker, but, and there's all, as we're, you know, we're discussing, there's all kinds of, you know, there's, there's dynamics of resting state. There's, uh, you know, these uh, uh, vigilance related ones, there's cognition. So what do you think is the most, potentially the most hopeful for using as a biomarker to assess disease? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's, that's an interesting question and hard. And, and I think that like, um, because there's so many things we can study in resting state, there may not be like one thing that's the most promising across the board, but actually like um, for some disease and for for some, you know, scientific goals, um, we end up, may end up looking at one feature or versus another in the signal. And um, I know there's there's been like maybe the most work on correlation and or connectivity analysis, because that's just, I think the trend of the field has, has gone that way that we look at correlations, but I think, um, there's um, a lot more interesting features that from the time series themselves that people have been also digging into in the last decade and longer about like, for example, uh, Shell Kyle Holtz's group working on these spatial temporal patterns um, or, um, you know, like uh, the, the time lag structure across the brain. Um, yes. A number of people have been looking at that. Um, or um, even the like signal amplitude itself, which is a kind of closer measure to the signal than a correlation. Um, and I think a, a lot of those features will end up being important too, or maybe, maybe I mean, something that's kind of been in my mind a lot is that um, a lot of features that people report as maybe being different are actually kind of picking up on the same underlying phenomenon. And so maybe like an amplitude change or something else can be all of these kind of like, you, you may see an effect in a number of different measures, but like maybe a lot of those things are picking up on the same thing that's going on. And so I think that it would be really important to kind of unify all these <laughs> measures um, as a future direction. Like, I mean, or yes. direction, you know, many people are working on that right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's an incredibly active area. I mean, because, uh, you know, People really care about this. I mean, most a lot of people just want to get rid of it. A lot of people want to use it, uh, and there's there's really not that many people who want to really delve into understanding it for biomarker purposes. I mean, I think yourself and you know uh, you know there's Laura Lewis and there's people like Blaise Frederick who who you know tries to use like photodiodes and see how and actually people have tried to look at the global latency as it relates to vascular patents patency and um, things like that that are really 
cool uh, sort of sort of things with that regard. So right, the the question of of, of biomarkers is uh, is wide open, and and even like so. So I'm kind of curious what you think. You know, uh, you know, still the debate is raging in terms of you know, do you do global signal regression or not? And uh, you know, there's views that it throws off the activation signal, views that it cleans things up. What do you think the global signal is? Do you think it's something related to vigilance? Do you think it's something related to just respiration? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I have a sort of like, <laughs> I, I, I feel like, like maybe we shouldn't be talking about the global signal, like it's one thing, because I feel like the global signal is just like the average signal. And so, um, like I, I think that like we know that like there's so many different effects that can contribute to um, what the average signal is um, at any given time, and yeah, that that question has been like so prevalent. I mean, I feel like ever since yeah, like what is it like 2005 or something yeah, <laughs> when uh, <laughs> that this the debate and you know when I that was around when I kind of like started in fMRI and I was like I wonder you know like oh, this will come to you know this is something that's going on right now um, but you know in 10 years. <laughs> we're going to have this resolve. <laughs> I guess it's really interesting. It's still um, like, I think there's still a lot of challenges in just deciding as a field, like um, what we should do in terms of this kind of like processing steps. But I think that like global signal, because it's not really one thing, it's, it is the, the average that, um, that I think it, it would be, I mean, um, I like the approach of trying to uh, dissect that into the various components so that we don't really need to decide if we do global signal regression. So if we actually understand the various contributors to that at any given time or any given scan, then we can just remove those and we won't need to take this kind of like very coarse approach of like finding an average signal and regressing that out. Because I I mean, the danger or like the case I always kind of think about is like, um, if, if you don't have that much global stuff to begin, like you don't have a lot of vigilance changes, you don't have a lot of respiratory changes, then um, like some of the drivers of the average signal are going to be like large networks that are correlated yeah. with each other. And if yeah. you regress out the global signal in a scan where that's the case, then you're doing something different to the data than you're than you are when you're regressing out that signal in a case where it is a lot of motion, it is a lot of vigilance, um, which may be the right thing to do there. <laughs> so it's kind of like there's a um, it's I don't know if the yeah like I feel like maybe the the question we can. Like I mean, like yeah, thinking about lots of ways we can like frame this question, which which doesn't really require a decision on whether whether to remove a global signal. I agree. I completely agree. It's it's one manipulation that might be useful, but it's it's really like you said, it's lumping everything together. And there's so in in the in like most of fMRI, it seems like the deeper and more carefully you look, the more you find. Like for instance, even. Even looking at resting state fluctuations, you know, with our work with with layer work, um, you know, we find that looking at a layer profile in V1, if we change our seed from you know lateral genicula to like MT, or you know, depending on where the seed is chosen, you get a very different layer profile of correlation. So there's all kinds of detailed correlations all the way down to the layer level um, that's to be pulled out. And and so you've done you've done some work where you you sort of knocked out the uh, in the in the monkey model the the nucleus bacillus uh, of Minert. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit in, in terms of and what you maybe learned from that manipulation as well? Sure. Yeah. Well, that was a really interesting study to be involved in, and this was again work with David Leopold's group. Um, 
and uh, Janita Turchi, who is the one who did the actual like monkey surgeries and <laughs> and knocking out this region. But like the um, the idea was, yeah, I mean, the this nucleus basalis is thought to be really you know critical in terms of arousal regulation. I mean, it's a has a, a you know widespread projections across the cortex and is a main source of cholinergic input. And so if 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 a region may have <laughs> impact on resting state fluctuations, that may be one that is is quite important. Um, and so then the idea was, can we kind of inactivate that region and then do fMRI scans and then see how um, the activity is or connectivity or some feature of resting state um, is changed? And um, we we found so we we did these um, uh, inactivations on like one hemisphere per experiment. So we were able to kind of like um, figure out if there was some kind of like um, asymmetry that was that was one like you kind of have built-in control if you do it that way um so is there anything different on this side where you have inactivated versus the side that didn't get inactivated um and the kind of thing that emerged right away i mean it was very big so it wasn't like we had to dig a lot in this this particular thing. it was just like the main thing i mean we kind of looked further but um the main thing was like um that the kind of global or widespread correlations and inactivity seem to be kind of tuned down on the side that was inactivated relative to the other side. So it's hard to say which is going up, which is going down, but there was a difference like hemispherically. So um, so then we, we, we tried to then like go and, and see like, well, okay, so is this a global effect? Is it also affecting resting state networks? There's actually some challenges we run into in trying to separate those because it's like there's you have to make a lot of assumptions if you're going to try to do that kind of separation. But the like you know, I guess like um, working conclusion we had from what we observed from what we tried there was was that like it seemed to we could still see bilateral resting state networks. There are slight differences in the amplitude that are in, in, introduced by the manipulation, but. It's not like half of it goes away, <laughs> um, but it was actually like there there was more of an asymmetry in terms of like non-specific, you know, um, global whatever that could mean in this case fluctuation. Um, and so I guess we learned a few things. I mean, like, well, first of all, for me, it was really interesting because like to do a kind of causal study in in in, in fMRI is we don't have that chance in you know our routine human human imaging studies. So um, we can do a lot of math and and modeling to try to figure out what's causal but if you have the experimental ability to go in and change something and then see what happens like that was very powerful so that was really a unique opportunity and I, that was really interesting um but but also like um yeah i guess it's um it can help us kind of learn um well well first of all the there because of debate on global signal there's there's always this kind of question of how much is neural and how much is not neural or and i think that like it's it I, I don't want to interpret it too much but like it, it's it seems that it may be a neural effect if it's you know in, inhibiting the activity in in the region that kind of in, influences this um still could be just you know something related to the hemodynamics we don't really know but uh but I, it, it kind of provides more evidence i think that it may you know we we can get uh, you know there's neural um yeah. Signals. And there's and there's there's neural origin. It's like a base of the brain neural origin in some sense of, you know, it might be related to something like you know who knows vigilance because it seems like you it only the effect was only there when the subjects were, were in a drowsy state. 
<laughs> wow, you're the, yeah, I, I forgot to think. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, that's right. So it seemed to be very state dependent. And, and so maybe actually like state dependent global signals that are changed. Right. So like if the, if the, we, we also had these eye measures. So we could do the same thing as we did in the previous study with kind of trying to use that as an indirect measure of whether the monkey was drowsy or not. And when they have their eyes open um, for like a while and you do that analysis, you don't really see any difference. It was more when they started to get drowsy and uh, like you could tell they're like on the road to falling asleep and that's where you'd see these fluctuations like really um like asymmetric you could see it much smaller on one side than another and it's like yeah that's <laughs> state dependent <laughs> yeah no that's that's interesting and i wonder i you know i just might you know in general i wonder if you knock out any uh any of the subcortical components you know whether you might get some sort of modulation of some sort of aspect and, and the story gets more and more complicated and, and eventually we'll figure it out i i'm thinking <laughs> yeah that's right i mean it was only like one node and you know maybe you know we don't know what this sounds like upstream of this to my yeah it's it's more work in that direction will be very interesting yeah yeah um yeah it just reminds me also of just sort of like a, a study of you know if we did if we do like ica on resting states and we and we regress out. We we you know sequentially. It's sort of a, a, a sort of a clunky technique. But if we do ICA, and then get rid of all the big components, and then keep on doing ICA, and finding more and more subtle components, there's patterns all the way down. There's there's yeah. uh, it, you know it's it's very uh, involved, <laughs> and it's so interesting. Um, Definitely. There's unique correlations that occur. You know, it's like an ocean. You know, you have all these ripples that are related in some way, but it's you, know, you try to get rid of them one by one. Um, so yeah, no, it's actually, it really is inspiring uh, to see your work um, and, and as you're sort of probing into this. And, and, and it's, it's something that I think more, more people, I mean, there's a lot of people, I mean, there's just a lot of people who are doing it. And, but it really, it's, it seems like it's still opening up as we go along. But um, okay, so just before we, before we shift gears, this one last open-ended question of, uh, and you sort of hinted at this throughout, but um, so where do you see, I mean, right now resting state is huge. It might be being pushed aside a little bit by you know, naturalistic stimuli and things like that, but it's still in itself truly interesting. So how, how do you picture the field in 10 years? Uh, what do you think we'll have figured out and what do you think we'll be doing <laughs> in <terms of> resting <laughs> state? I know it's a, it's, yeah. it's a, and we're gonna play this podcast 10 years from now to see. If <laughs> Um, so I, yeah, I, I guess in terms of, of resting state, yeah, there's, um, I, I guess like, um, hope that we'll have a, as, as we did touch on before that we'll have a, a clear understanding of where this fluctuations are, what these fluctuations are at any given moment. So, um, instead of having to kind of, yeah, just like, I don't know, I guess we'll have better tools to kind of separate out the different sources and to be able to use them um, as, as maybe use, most useful for different studies. Um, and um, yeah, models for, I mean, yeah, going back to all the things we said, like models for physiology, how do we model that in, in the signal? Um, and um, and actually like the, the question of whether to use resting state versus something like naturalistic stimuli or, 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 or tasks, I think like, I mean, I think that, um, if we're trying to study spontaneous fluctuations and get a sense of like intrinsic architecture, it's um, I think that's an open direction in terms of what is the best way to characterize that. Like, do we, um, yeah, what what kind of 
um, condition should a person be in if we want to get, say, functional networks that most closely approximate structure or that are most stable, kind of like representations of persons' networks, um, versus like maybe we want other paradigms if we want to study the dynamics um, of the signals and more about how they're changing over time. Um, so I think that. I don't know if I really answered the question of where we'll be in 10 years, but I think that like work going forward will be like, yeah. these are interesting questions to me that like maybe we'll have like, um, it'll be interesting where we, we are in 10 years. Yeah, no, it's going to be interesting. I, I, you know, there's a lot of, it's still a lot of open questions and we're kind of building the tools and it's kind of at this early stage, it seems of just sort of like, okay, this seems like it is related to this and this seems like it's modulated by this and and it's very early. And like you said, it's, the key is building models, I think. And that's what you, you do, uh, you've been doing really well. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's to keep on building ever more sophisticated models to, to, to pull these things out. Um, okay, well, well uh, so just to shift gears uh, towards the end here a little bit, um, uh, uh, what sort of, um, so what sort of advice, uh, and, and this is an important aspect of just, there's a lot of young people in the field and, and uh, what sort of advice would you give them, you know, at, at, at this level of either graduate students or, or, or uh, you know, uh, younger or, or slightly older, and especially in the context of, uh, of women in, in science and neuroscience as well. So, so what, what sort of things have you seen? What sort of uh, experiences have you had? What advice would you give? Uh, in terms of you know forming your lab, or what sort of challenges have you had? Oh, um, gosh, um, I think I think good mentorship goes a long way. I think that I've been really lucky to have really good mentors, um, and I I hope that I can be a good mentor for my students too. And I try to take you know from the examples that I've that I've I've been lucky to have in my life about like you know being um, being able to be like connected to other people in the field, like whom your advisor may know, um, or, or other, you know, informal mentors may know. Um, and I think that like having more than one mentor too is, is, is an excellent idea. And I think that it's great to be able to hear different perspectives um, from different people at different career stages. Um, so I think that like, um, yeah, trying to, um, uh, trying, trying to, yeah, <laughs> be, be, be connected with good mentors is, is a really um, important thing. Um, so maybe this is something that that uh, that you wouldn't say for yourself, but but I would say it is that I think a key thing with your success not only is the great work you've done, but that you've been so uh, open and and generous and uh, you know with your time and you, with your you know people. I think I think the field people in the field pick up on that more than we realize, and I think that. Uh, you know, everyone in the field wants you to be successful, uh, partially because of the fact that, you know, you're very um, positive and and uh, uh, open and 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 sharing in that regard. So I think that, I think that's important. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I I I love collaborating. I I love. Um, building tools <laughs> that um, like uh, if it can be useful to to people and I think that like one of the fun areas of being in fMRI methods research is that it really presents a lot of chances to work with people in different fields which I'd also say like is kind of advice to to other people is that like you don't have to worry about like 
going down the one path, like, you know, you, you see your goal and you have to only do studies that take you there, but to kind of um, be open to different ideas and have maybe things go in, in different paths. I mean, like, you know, to some extent, sometimes it's hard to manage, but like um, to, to kind of like broaden, like, um, the, the, the perspective you get about where imaging can be used and how people are thinking about it. Um, because then I think that it's really from a lot of collaborations where I feel like I've gotten a lot of ideas for things to do in terms of fMRI methods. And then hopefully like there's kind of cycle where like you then do that research and then like somebody else might find that method useful and then you, you have a new collaboration. Um, and so that's like been a really fun thing about being in this field. Yeah, and, and, and you, you really do do that well. and I, and. And it can't be emphasized enough how, how much it's not just like about doing something and then publishing it and then suddenly you're connected. It really is, the more I think about it, the more it's more like a, a craft that you know you have a mentor who sort of introduces you to everyone and you're doing something and you talk to them at meetings and you and you sort of build this reputation and 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 opens open it up doors. Um yeah, I have a I have a colleague who who's switching fields altogether and it we he he's come to realize that it's really hard to completely switch fields on your own uh, <laughs> because there's barriers. People are like, who are you? I'm not going to accept your paper, you know, even if it is great. Uh, it's very, there's more, it's more social than we realize uh, as far as that's concerned. And so, and, and so being collaborative and open and, and, and always, and, and using your advisors and whatever is, is just an awesome, uh, it, it's important to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, so I think that that pretty much covers everything, uh, almost everything that that you know. There's obviously so many more things to, to talk about, um, but uh, but I think this is this is perfect. Um, is there any last bits of advice or any piece of motivation or whatever you'd like to to give anyone before we uh, before we stop here? Um, uh, I don't know. Have fun with the data. <laughs> <laughs> Keep on playing with the data. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And that's key. That I, I I totally agree with you. That's so key. Um, so many people just, you know, have their model. They just want to interpret it a certain way. But it's it's still a lot to, a lot to explore and a lot to be open about. But yeah. All right. Well, well, thank you very much. Thanks for thanks for spending the hour. This will be really really, I think, uh, helpful for a lot of people. So, all right. Well, thanks. Bye.